0: your Bibles then to 2 Chronicles and chapter 33. 2 Chronicles 33 and the first person we're going to focus on tonight is a king named Manasseh and as we've seen as we look at these different characters there are also other bit part players that come in to the story. So the main figure in our first section and there are three sections to our study tonight is Manasseh, 2 Chronicles chapter 33. I shall also be referring back to 2 Kings 21 verses 1 to 18, where he's also mentioned. But 2 Chronicles 33 is the main passage. That should all be down on your outline. Well, as we've seen with several of other uh, kings, they came to the throne at an early age. We thought about one in the last study, And that was Joash, the little boy lost, as we called him. Well, here we've got Manasseh. And Manasseh was older than Joash, Joash was only seven. Manasseh, in fact, was twelve years old when he became king of Judah. You remember that the kingdom of David and Solomon was split into two, and you finished up with the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. And we've now moved through the history of the Old Testament to the point where only Judah remains. Um, Israel has been attacked and taken over by the Assyrians. It, It ceased to exist a long time ago, swallowed up by the Assyrians, whose capital was Nineveh. In fact, we mustn't forget that Judah itself was almost swallowed up by the Assyrians at the same time. In fact, it was attacked by them and Jerusalem was put under siege during the reign of Manasseh's father, who is a very famous king of Israel, and his name was Hezekiah. And you can refresh your memory about him, if you wish, on the previous chapter, to Chronicles 32. And you may remember that God miraculously intervened on that occasion. Otherwise, Judah would probably have disappeared as a nation as well. But Judah then remained intact by keeping the Assyrians happy. And believe it or not, one of the things that kept the Assyrians happy was olive oil. And Judah was a big producer of olive oil. So guess where most of their exports went? Correct. Assyria to keep them from attacking Judah. But of course, as we know, there were always power shifts. There's always power shifts in politics. And although Assyria appeared to be pretty much the established top dog in the area at this particular time, and were for hundreds of years, they were about to be threatened by a kingdom to the east, Babylon. And they would come to challenge the dominance of Assyria in the region. Just staying with Hezekiah a minute, during his reign Hezekiah had done some amazing things he brought about widespread civil and religious reforms in the country. And Hezekiah had always kept a close relationship with God. And he destroyed all traces of pagan worship. And Hezekiah showed himself to be a man of prayer. You remember how he spread out his letter before the Lord. That's the famous picture I would have when I think of Hezekiah. That's what I think of, him spreading out his letter when they were being attacked by the Assyrians. And during his reign, during the reign of Hezekiah, the temple had been reopened, it had been renovated, and it had become the centre of worship once again. The Passover feast was being properly observed. The Philistines, perpetual long-lasting enemies of the Jews going back centuries, the Philistines had been defeated, and the Assyrians had been miraculously repelled by God's intervention. And there had been something of a religious revival in the nation while Hezekiah was on the throne. In fact, Hezekiah was simply one of the best kings that Judah ever had. In fact, he was probably the best king that Judah ever had. And in 2 Kings 18, 3 to 8, he's given a very glowing testimonial indeed by the writer there. So that was Hezekiah. Now, His son, Manasseh, had grown up seeing all this and seeing how profitable and good it was to follow the Lord and do what the Lord wanted and how that helped the nation to prosper. But in spite of this, when Manasseh came to the throne, he set about reversing, changing, taking back everything that his father had done. In fact, he'd been more influenced by his grandfather believe it or not, his grandfather Ahaz, who we've met before. And in verses 3 to 9, we see that Manasseh committed many dreadful sins in the eyes of God. He committed many dreadful sins in the eyes of God. Just before we leave that grandparent business, many of us are grandparents. So it's just a, a reminder of what influence grandparents can actually have on their grandchildren. not be anything like me, but sometimes you think you don't have any influence at all. (laughs) But truly you are. You are having an influence. You'd be surprised. And obviously Manasseh got on well with his granddad and he learnt from him. And Manasseh's grievous sins, you can see them listed there, they included desecrating the temple by building altars to numerous pagan deities there and worshipping them. So the temple, of course, that was supposed to be exclusively to the worship of the one true God was being used as a centre for the worship of various cults and deities. And, of course, these included, you won't be surprised to learn, the gods of the stars worshipped by, guess who? The Assyrians. In an attempt, of course, to ingratiate himself with this great big empire to the north that threatened his borders and keep them at bay. So part of that was why he had Assyrian deities worshipped in the temple, to establish his position as an ally of Assyria. He also encouraged various occult practices, including sorcery, divination and witchcraft. And Manasseh himself consulted mediums and spiritists, and he even, horror of horrors, he even offered his sons as human sacrifices. He even offered his sons as human sacrifices. That was the depth of the deprivation that we see in King Manasseh. In spite of the fact, you could say, he'd been brought up in a religious home. (laughs) Well, God didn't stand idly by, obviously, and watch all this happening. He sent prophets, as God usually did in his grace and mercy and love for his people whenever they strayed from his commandments and broke the covenant. God always sent prophets, people to speak to the king, to speak to to the people and he sent prophets to warn the people of the consequences of following Manasseh's ways. And they in fact echoed the words of the prophet Amos those of you who came to my series about the minor prophets a few years ago now will may remember that Amos and Hosea were prophets to the northern kingdom in and, and its death throes, if you like, in the last days of its existence, trying desperately to turn the people back to God before it was too late. And the words that the prophets say here to Manasseh very much echo what Amos said to the northern kingdom, which was also known as Samaria, many years previously. And in fact, here I'm quoting from two kings, 21, verses 12 to 13. And this is what it says. I am going to bring such a disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem. This is the interesting tie-up with Amos here. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria. In other words, when it was northern Israel, also known as Samaria because its capital was called, was Samaria. And it goes on, and the plumb line, that was a very famous illustration used by Amos, if you remember, he held the plumb line against the wall, the wall that was Israel, and it was found to be out of true, out of the uh, perpendicular where it should have been indicating how far they'd moved away from God. And here, again, they use this phrase, plumb line. And the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. If you remember, of course, the house of Ahab ruled Israel for many, many years with all the problems that brought. We've picked that up quite a lot, haven't we, in previous studies in this series. The quote goes on, I will wipe out Jerusalem. I like this bit, I just love the imagery here that the prophets use. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes out a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So these these prophets have obviously done some of the washing up, you know, they didn't leave it all to the ladies, obviously. Uh, As one wipes out a dish and turns it upside down, that's how I'm going to wipe out Jerusalem. It's going to be wiped out completely, thoroughly, utterly in the years ahead. And there's plenty more besides that they had to say. But unfortunately, like was the case in the northern kingdom of Israel, nobody paid the slightest bit of attention to what God was saying. Now when Manasseh had been king for about 45 years, so he's getting into his late 50s now, the Babylonians decided... The time was right. The time was right to flex their muscles against the dominant power of Assyria. And so they rebelled. The Babylonians rebelled against the Assyrians. In fact, the rebellion was very soon and very easily put down. But, and here's the but, it seems that the Assyrians suspected Manasseh of siding with the Babylonians in their uprising. And so, you'll see from verse 11, we're back in 2 Chronicles 33 now, in our, in our main passage. you see from verse 11 that they seized Manasseh and they humiliated him. They humiliated him by putting a hook in his nose, which is what they did, and then they sort of chained them all up together and shackling him. And he was transported to Babylon, interestingly, not to Nineveh. I checked that out twice just to make sure that was right. I thought, why did not you take him to Nineveh? No. He'd rebelled against Babylon. And so what they were doing was showing the Babylonians that they were still in charge by using their capital city to carry out these trials of those who'd rebelled against them. So they were going to the centre of the rebels to make a point, is how I read it anyway. And they were going to put... Manasseh on trial with the rest of the rebels. Of course, this was seen as God's judgment. This was seen as God's judgment on Manasseh and on the people of Judah for paying no attention to the prophets. This is what happens. Now, here's the fascinating bit. Oh, it's fascinating to me anyway, and hopefully fascinating to you as well. This Humiliating experience proved to be a turning point. A turning point in the life of Manasseh. Now remember the sort of king he was. Remember the sort of things he'd done. I'm sure you could list them back to me quite easily. Even to the extent of sacrificing his own sons. You know, human sacrifice. But there, in that Babylonian dungeon, something remarkable (laughs) happened. Happened, And you can see it in verse 12. And I'm quoting, In his distress, he, Manasseh, sought the favour of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. So there we have it, Manasseh, one of the most evil kings in the history of Judah, got down on his knees, prayed and asked for God's forgiveness. How would God respond? How would God respond to a wicked man like Manasseh asking forgiveness? Guess. In fact, don't guess. Look at verse 13. Quote, and when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And there's just some wonderful words. So you see, not only did God forgive him, but he actually intervened. He intervened in Manasseh's situation and brought him back to Judah to continue his reign. And for me, this is a really wonderful example of God's mercy and of God's grace for each one of us. The boundless forgiveness and mercy and love that God shows to us, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, When we pray and we're sincere and repentant, God forgives us and welcomes us back and begins to cause things to change in our lives. Wonderful thing. And I also think in this we see an encouragement for all of us, an encouragement to keep praying for that unsaved person. Because who knows, tomorrow, tomorrow may be a turning point a turning point in their life. Now, I know what you are thinking, some of you are cynically minded here. Like me. You are thinking, how do we know that Manasseh's repentance was real? And not just a desperate charade to get him out of the mess that he was in. Well, there's proof. There's proof. It was real. Look at verses 15 and 16. Look at what he did during the rest of his reign. Now you see, John the Baptist talked about this, you know. He talked about the proof of our repentance. The proof of our repentance is in our actions. It's in what we do next that proves whether our repentance is genuine and sincere. So what did... Manasseh do next? Do we read here in verses 15 to 16? Well, it tells us there that he got rid of all images and altars to pagan gods, both inside the temple and in the city of Jerusalem. Now that was extremely courageous, was it not? That was extremely brave. Why? Because it threatened his cozying up to the Assyrians, didn't it? If he starts shifting out all the gods that he's worshipped in the temple to sort of chummy up to the Assyrians and suddenly he then starts throwing them out, well, that's a risky strategy, isn't it? The Assyrians are going to think, hello, we've got to watch him. And we might not just watch him, we might remove him. Right? Because if we want somebody in there, we can have a puppet. you know. So it was taking a risk. But this to me is proof. Of a change in his heart because we see it in his actions. And it didn't stop there. We read on that he restored the worship of God and sacrifices to the Lord at the altar in the temple. And there's more. He commanded the people to serve the Lord. He commanded the people. To serve the Lord. So he starts off like his grandpa and he finishes up like his dad, which is an interesting transition when you think about it. Unfortunately, I have to tell you, this attempt at restoring the worship of God didn't work, it didn't have any lasting effect because shortly after he was succeeded by his son Ammon, A-M-O-N, who swept aside the changes that his father had made and restored the pagan worship that Manasseh had originally established. You'll find that in verse 22. Perhaps Ammon was suffering from what his father first suffered when he came to the throne, Assyrianitis. You know, I want to get back to making placating the Assyrians, making sure they don't decide to invade my country by force. So I'll suck up to them a bit and back went the Assyrian deities into the temple, and worship of them was happening all over again. Well, interestingly, Ammon only reigned for two years. Before he was assassinated by disgruntled conspirators and replaced by another little boy. So we've had seven year old Joash, we've had 12 year old Manasseh, and now we've got eight year old Josiah. Look at verses 24 to 25. So Josiah, age eight, now comes to the throne. which brings us on to the next two chapters in the second book of Chronicles. So if you turn on from chapter 33, where we've been, and into 34 and 35. I'll also be making reference to parallel passage of this time in the second book of Kings, which is chapter 22 through to chapter 23 and verse 30. You should find those references on your sheet. Chapter 34 and verse 1, tells us that Josiah would be king of Judah for 31 years. When he got to the age of 16, Josiah seems to have made a real commitment to serve God. Of course, we read in verse 3 of chapter 34 that he began to, and I quote, seek the God of his father or ancestor if you like David he began to seek the God of his father David and he sought God for wisdom and he sought God for guidance in his life at the age of 16 just shows us again how very important our teenage years are in what we lay down there that we're going to build the rest of our lives on And at the age of 20, we see in verses 3 through to 7, he ordered and directed the destruction of all traces of pagan worship that had filled the land during the reigns of his father Ammon and his grandfather Manasseh. And when he was 26 years old, he began a programme of building works to repair and restore the temple in Jerusalem to something like its former glory. And you see that in verses 8 through to 13. Now at some point, the high priest whose name was Hilkiah, Hilkiah the high priest found, and I quote from verse 14, the book of the law of the Lord that had been given Through Moses. So it seems while the temple was being renovated, repaired, rebuilt, whatever, they came across this document, this book, a book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. It's described as there in verse 14. So, what was this book? Well, it seems that it was actually more than likely the book of Deuteronomy the book of Deuteronomy, which had been lost possibly during the years of the evil kings of Judah. Now Hilkiah, remember, the high priest, he sent Shaphan, the secretary, to Josiah with the book of the law. And Shaphan began to read it to the king. So you can Picture the scene. Here's the secretary with the book of the law and he's reading it to the king. And as Josiah sat there and he listened to the book of Deuteronomy being read to him, he began to shake. He was shaken to the core because he realized he realized that what he had managed to implement so far had only scratched the surface. It only scratched the surface of what God required of his people. And so moved was Josiah by this, that he tore his robes in grief and he wept. He wept in sorrow at his own failure, as he saw it. And that of the people to live holy lives before God as set out in this book. He realised that in spite of all his own efforts, They were way, 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 way short of the mark of what God required. And in verse 21 of chapter 34, we read the conclusion that he came to. And I quote, Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted In accordance with all that is written in this book. And Josiah realized. He realized that he needed to seek the Lord about this matter. So he's reading verse 21. So he asked a group led by Hilkiah to, and I quote, inquire of the Lord. On his behalf. So, if you like, he set up a subcommittee to look into the whole matter and report back to him, post haste, ASAP. This subgroup, if you like, this committee that he set up, consulted a prophetess, and her name was Hulda, H-U-L-D-A-H. They consulted Hulda, and she declared that the sins of the people down the years were going to result in God's anger coming upon Judah with disastrous consequences for the nation. That was her prophecy. You can look at it in full in verses 22 through to 28. But there was a little bit of good news. But because Josiah had responded in the way he had, God's judgment would not fall during his reign. Josiah would not have to face all the upheaval and disaster that was going to hit Judah. Josiah's reign would in fact be characterized by peace. That was the prophecy. Now in actual fact, we know that Judah and Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians about 60 years after the death of Josiah in 586 BC, bringing the kingdom of Judah to an end when Jerusalem was finally completely ransacked and destroyed. Hearing the contents of the book of the law, spurred Josiah on in his campaign, in his campaign to purge the land of everything that smacked of pagan worship. As as such, in doing so, he was following in the footsteps of his great-grandfather, Hezekiah. Josiah's purge was actually more extensive and far-reaching than Hezekiah's had actually been. And it even included demolishing and defiling the high place at Bethel that had been set up by Jeroboam. Remember when we did Jeroboam many, many studies ago? Well, there's a link back there here, you see. He set up, if you remember, the calves at Bethel and at Dan. So, Because he was terrified of all the people coming down to Jerusalem, to the temple to worship and fearing that they'd all go back to Rehoboam. So he set it all up. And that was the entry point for all of the deities coming in as well, which we talked about at the time. So Josiah demolished and defiled the high place at Bethel. And therefore, the prophecy about Bethel was fulfilled. The prophecy you can see in 1 Kings 13 1 to 2, and 2 Kings 23 15 to 18. He was courageously defying the Assyrians, because of all, of course, this was in in Assyrian territory now. He was courageously defying them, not only by banishing worship of their gods from Judah, but also from the old parts of the kingdom of Israel, like Bethel, now under Assyrian control. And he took other measures as well. He proceeded to renew the covenant in the temple insisting that the people pledged themselves to serving God once again you can see that in verses 31 to 32 there of chronicles 2 chronicles 34 he restored the ark to its proper place and in verses uh, into chapter 35 we see in verses 3 and 18 that he held a magnificent celebration of the passover So he renews the covenant. He insists that the people serve the Lord. He restores the Ark of the Covenant to its proper place. And he has this celebration of the Passover. Celebrating the Passover had been severely neglected. And he was reinstituting it. But again, unfortunately, Josiah's measures and Josiah's reforms never really touched the hearts and minds of the people. They went along with the king because they respected him. So they did what he said out of respect rather than out of conviction. And if you look in the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapters 2 through to 6, you'll see that there. Well, In the 28th year of Josiah's reign, the Babylonians, under somebody you may have heard of, Nebuchadnezzar, captured Nineveh. Nineveh, you remember, is the capital of Assyria. So the Babylonians have now risen again against the Assyrians, struck right into the heart of their empire and even captured the capital Nineveh. Three years later, the Battle of Carchemish took place in 605 BC is where we're at for those of you who are of a historical bent and in this at this battle the Babylonians moved in force to finish off the Assyrians and this is where Egypt comes into play Necho N-E-C-O was the Pharaoh of Egypt and Necho didn't like what was happening. He preferred the status quo. He preferred being an ally of the Assyrians to what might happen if the Babylonians got control of the area. He obviously feared that they would push down south from Assyria through Judah. And guess who's next on the list? Egypt. So what Necho wants to do is get up to Carchemish as quick as possible, to fight alongside the Assyrians against the Babylonians. Now, to do this, Necho has to go through Judah. That's on his route. You know, There's no way around it. There's no bypass around Judah. It's through the middle. So he had to pass through Judah. Now, interestingly, Josiah saw this as a threat to the kingdom of Judah. Despite strong reassurances from Necho that this wasn't the case. Necho, in fact, if you look in chapter 35, verses 20 to 21, Necho even claimed that God had sent him on this mission. So he's saying to Josiah, you've no need to worry, I just want to get through, I don't want to occupy your country, which is what, you see, Josiah was fearing, that Necho would use this as a cover to expand his own empire, you see, and set up a front in case the Babylonians won, that they'd have to battle down first before they came into Egypt and started causing carnage down there. Better to cause carnage in Judah. You know? So this is why, reading between the lines, Josiah isn't keen on Necho coming up through his territory, albeit to try and preserve the status quo. Now here's something really interesting from all that we know about Josiah and it seems to be a common factor with the kings that we've learnt about in this series of when they get themselves or find themselves in extreme situations and it's a characteristic we'd never expect. Would you not expect, as, I'm sure, as I would, Josiah to turn to the Lord? and say, Lord, what shall I do about this? But it looks as though he didn't even do that. He didn't consult God. You see, my reading of it is that his fears got the better of him. His fears got the better of him. And I don't know about you, but that's true of me. When my fears get the better of me, I start to act in a way that logically, rationally, I wouldn't normally, but it's just it grips you. And I think this is what happened Here with Josiah, his fears got the better of him. So what does he do? He goes out in disguise, interesting. He goes out in disguise to do battle with Necho at a place called Megiddo. Megiddo. You read about this in verses 22 to 24. Because, as I've said before, his fears were that if Necho and the Assyrians defeated Babylon, whichever way round it happened, if Necho and the Assyrians won, then they would, not, would they not turn on Judah and divide it up between them? Who knows? The future was just so uncertain. Josiah preferred the situation he knew rather than the unknown, which is not unreasonable. I think we all do, in many ways. Well, in verses 22 to 24, we read that Josiah was actually killed during the fighting, during the Battle of Megiddo. And verse 25 tells us that he was buried in Jerusalem. And Jeremiah, who was around at the time, Jeremiah composed laments, for Josiah it is interesting in fact if you're interested to know what did happen and if you're not I'm going to tell you anyway Necho went on to join the Assyrians but the Babylonians were victorious and they became the dominant power in the region let's just close this first session with this thought Josiah was always prepared to acknowledge sin. He was prepared to deal with sin and he was prepared to remove the causes of sin. And I think, do we follow his example? Are we like that too? Matthew 5 verses 29 to 30 has something to say to us on that subject. Okay, turn with me now for the second part of our study to Ezra, the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 1. In fact, this section that I'm going to be doing with you covers chapter 1 through to the beginning of chapter 5. I don't know how long it is since you uh, dived into Ezra, (coughs) but uh, it's uh, very rewarding and uh, worthwhile. And really we, we pick up the story from where we left it uh, before the break, 47 years after the fall of Jerusalem. So remember we had Josiah, we had the, the prophecy from Huldah, we had God's fulfilment of that prophecy that it was only 60 years after the death of Josiah that all these events occurred. So his reign was one of peace which was God's way of confirming his presence with um, Josiah. And uh, so here we are in 539 BC, uh, when we get into Ezra chapter 1. They have been in captivity. You remember how the Babylonians came in, and they took many of the Jews, mainly the sort of um, bright um, aristocratic Jews, over to Babylon to re-educate them. And this, of course, was the setting for the book of Daniel. And you can read all about the re-education of the Jews in that book there, which we haven't got time to get into today. However, in 539 BC, the Medes and Persians, which were kind of like sandwiched between the Assyrians, if you look at the map to the left... (laughs) And the Babylonians to the right in that part, it, in the middle were the Medes and the Persians. And uh, as we've said before, none of these empires ruled forever. There was that sort of ebb and flow of power. And the the Medes and Persians had grown and grown and grown in strength and eventually we had Babylon being conquered. And you remember about the writing on the wall um, in in Daniel and uh, how uh, Belshazzar Uh, is told about what's going to happen and that night in came the Medes and the Persians and that was the end of the Babylonian Empire. And so the Persians become under their leader Cyrus, C-Y-R-U-S, Cyrus, they become the dominant power in the area. Now Cyrus (coughs) had a completely different foreign policy to that of the Babylonians and even the Assyrians. Cyrus's foreign policy was to allow captured peoples to return home. He didn't break up nations. He was quite happy to have them living in their own ways, with their own religions and so on, provided, of course, they were good boys and behaved themselves and didn't cause him any trouble. He felt that that was the best way to keep his empire intact, to keep people happy, rather than to break people up and render them asunder. So basically it was a different kind of foreign policy that he had. And so under this foreign policy the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem and begin work on rebuilding the temple the following year. And indeed Cyrus issued a decree to this effect that the Jews were empowered given his authority to rebuild their capital city, Jerusalem, and its temple. So it's an official edict. Not only that, if you look at verses 7 to 11 of Ezra 1, Cyrus generously returned all the 5,400. It's as precise as that in Ezra. Ezra's very meticulous. In fact, he said Ezra actually edited much of the Old Testament. But that's another story, don't get me going the 5,400 articles of gold and silver which Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple in Jerusalem back in 586. That was extremely generous of Cyrus. It was not something he had to do, but I think it was one of those sort of goodwill gestures right, towards the peoples of his empire. And so Zerubbabel brought these precious items back with him when he returned to Judah with the first wave of settlers from Babylon. About 50,000 Jews made the journey back to Jerusalem under his leadership in 538 BC. And more would follow, led by Ezra in 458 BC and Nehemiah in 445 BC. So you've got three waves of people Coming back to Jerusalem. So you might be saying, Well, I've heard of Ezra and I've heard of Nehemiah, but who's Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel to me is a key figure. If it hadn't been for this guy, I dare to suggest there may well not have been an Ezra or a Nehemiah because there was a Zerubbabel. This happened, it paved the way for these guys to come along later. And to me, it's a crying shame that we know about the last two, but we don't know about the first one. Well, Zerubbabel was actually the grandson of Jehoiachin. And he's saying, come on, Ray, I'm no wiser now. Okay, let me tell you, Jehoiachin was the penultimate, the last but one king of Judah before the destruction of the temple in 586 by the Babylonians. So the point being... He was of royal birth and he was, therefore, a descendant of King David and an ancestor of Jesus. And if you look over at Matthew 1, 12 to 13, you'll find his name in the genealogy. And the people, when they were in Babylon, even back there, they recognised Zerubbabel's leadership qualities. They recognised, presumably, his lineage and they recognised his authority and they recognised his leadership. They were more than happy to be led by Zerubbabel. They willingly accepted him as their governor back in the Babylonian years. And chapter 2 of Ezra, verse 63, shows us that they still called him governor when they were back in Judah. So, remember what's happened to Jerusalem, how it's been absolutely flattened by the Babylonians 47, 48 years ago hasn't been touched since so where do you begin? where do you begin when you're faced with a city that's reduced to rubble well some of you may have heard me utter this famous sentence before but I'm going to say it again the trouble for the rubble was all that rubbable. The trub- I'm so good, I'm so pleased with that. I'm going to say it again. The trumvable for the was all that rubbable, but the realised there was something even more important than tackling the rubble situation, and that was to tackle the spiritual situation. Before he got onto the material situation, he realised that the most important thing to do was to re-establish the worship of God in Jerusalem. That was number one priority. So, after a short time of settling down in their new surroundings, work began. Work began on the rebuilding of the temple, the Temple of Solomon, that temple on its original site. If you look at verses 68 and 9 of chapter 2, you'll see that the heads of each family had already contributed as much as they could towards this massive project. Massive project is probably an understatement, rebuilding the temple. It won't surprise you to know that the money available to carry out this rebuilding project fell well short of what King David had amassed for the building of the original temple and passed on to Solomon, who had 1,000 times as much money at his disposal when he began the work as Zerubbabel had. See 1 Chronicles twenty-two fourteen. 14. Now before starting work, laying the foundations for the temple walls, Zerubbabel, along with Jeshua, the priest, His fellow priests and associates, look at chapter 3 verse 2 for this quote, began to build the altar, key words, began to build what? The altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses. So there's the priority. To build the altar. Even before you start the foundations. You build the altar. Now of course you can see what they're doing. He's making a statement. He's making a statement that they were totally committed to serving God. The altar. Worship at the altar. He was making a statement which said that they would not be drawn into the worship of foreign gods as worshipped by their neighbours. We worship the one true God. This is his altar. We're saying that from the start. It was also saying that they were rededicating themselves to him to live their lives in accordance with God's laws. So you see what an important statement this was. Rebuilding the altar, first of all. It was a bold move. It was a very bold move because they were surrounded by peoples who didn't want them there. They were surrounded by peoples who did not welcome their return. They say nature abhors a vacuum. So when the Jews were taken out, dispersed, removed, the vacuum was filled by other peoples moving into the area. How would you feel it if this lot of people came and plonked themselves back in the middle of an area where you had got things sorted. You wouldn't be happy either. So there you begin to understand the kind of opposition that they were going to face. And uh, chapter 3, verse 3 says, it was done, quote, despite their fear. Despite their fear that an attack upon them was imminent from any of these neighbours around who didn't want them back in Jerusalem. And I think this challenges us too, doesn't it? In the sense of, are we courageous enough to make such a statement of intent in the place where we find ourselves? Even though we may be afraid, as they undoubtedly were, of what the consequences might be. It's all about making a statement. Making a statement of intent. This is not something they did in a corner. This was something here's the altar right out in the open. It's very challenging, isn't it? Well, after the rebuilding of the altar, Zerubbabel now turned his attention to the rebuilding of the temple itself. And, and to me here, Zerubbabel shows great wisdom. Because he allows Jeshua, remember the high priest, along with all the other priests and the Levites to supervise the work starting with the laying of the foundations you see that in verses 8 and 9 why? because it was their sphere of influence they were the priests this is the temple Okay, priests, Levites this is your sphere this is your area of responsibility I'm handing it over to you I'm not going to tell you how to do it even though I'm the governor Right? this is your area So I think that that is great wisdom, great diplomacy there, there from Zerubbabel. In any case, Zerubbabel had other practical, important practical things to do, including negotiating terms. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 3, including negotiating terms with the Phoenicians to supply wood for the building of the temple as they'd done for Solomon. If you look back in 2 Chronicles Chapter 2, you will see. And, also in verse 7, making sure that the masons and the carpenters were all paid. It may sound a little thing, but it's very, very important. He had attention to detail. shows me that he was a very wise governor in how he tackled this whole situation. And verses 10 to 11 tells us that when the foundations had been laid... They all stopped and they held a noisy and enthusiastic service of praise and thanksgiving and celebration. I'd have loved to have seen that, been part of that. Tremendous time it must have been. There was music and there was shouting and there was much singing, including words from one of David's Psalms. Quote, he is good, his love to Israel endures forever. Those words are recorded in 1 Chronicles 16, verses 34 and 41. But, oh dear, there's always a but. But the shouts of joy were mingled with the sound of much weeping. What on earth was there to cry about on such a joyful occasion? Well, I'm afraid it came from us who are in the elderly category. Because you see, we'd seen the original. We were old enough. When we were little, when we were children, we saw the original. And this ain't going to be a patch on it. So there was much weeping. Look at verses 12 to 13. It's, this temple's not going to be anything like as glorious and spectacular as the old one had been. You know, I wonder whether that put a bit of a damper on proceedings for poor old Zerubbabel and for his generation, the younger generation, here's the older generation going on about how wonderful it was in the past. Not that that ever happens nowadays, of course. But therein lies the challenge, isn't it? Are we ever guilty of looking back to the good old days and regaling the younger generation with how much better and wonderful it was in the church in those times? Do we ever consider how discouraging that can be? Especially since in my experience, it's often done through what I call glory-tinted spectacles. Isn't it true that looking back is only helpful if... It informs and encourages us in our current situation and gives us a springboard, gives us an impetus to move on. Because you see, God continually wants to do new things, I believe. New things among his people and can be hampered by those of us who've only got eyes for the past. Well... I think Zerubbabel must have gone home to his wife and he said, you know what, dear? All I keep hearing from the elderly, bless their hearts, is stories about the glories. Stories about the glories of the old temple. But to Zerubbabel's great credit, he didn't didn't allow that to deflect him from his God-given task of rebuilding it. He knew... And again, here is his wisdom of thinking to me. He knew that he needed to concern himself with the present. He needed to accept the situation as it was and get on with the job, to get on with the job of restoring the nation under God's guidance. What an example he is to us all, I believe. Well, The success of the Jews in getting to this stage really annoyed their neighbours, particularly, I have to say, the Samaritans to the north. So who were the Samaritans? Because they pop up all over the Gospels, don't they? Well, here we have the roots of the Samaritans. They were a mixture of foreign peoples who the Assyrians had drafted into the old northern kingdom of Israel when they conquered it, to occupy the land. And those peoples had intermarried with the Israelites who were there and became known as the Samaritans because the area they lived in was called Samaria, as well as Israel. So that particular area. So you've got this intermarriage with foreigners going on. And they saw a rebuilt temple and city of Jerusalem in a potentially prosperous Jewish state as a threat to their security and economic welfare and they decided to do something about it. They're going to do something about it to stop this before it got too far. And they used some very clever tactics, did the Samaritans. Moving into chapter 4 of Ezra, verses 1 and 2. The first tactic they tried was to try and infiltrate. To try and infiltrate the Jews in the hope of destroying them from within. And so we see in those verses that they came to Zerubbabel offering to help build the temple. Yes, to help build the temple that they didn't want built. Saying that they worship God too. Well, of course, this was a half-truth. They worshipped him alongside pagan gods. And Zerubbabel and uh, his leaders knew what they were up to. And so you see in verse 3 that they sent them away saying, quote, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. So, second tactic, having failed to infiltrate them and slow down the work from inside, if you like, The Samaritans then resorted to emotional and psychological warfare and they began a sustained campaign of intimidation and discouragement which was calculated to wear them down emotionally, to play on their fears and to destroy their will to keep on building. You can see that in chapter 4 and verse 4. And at the same time they hired counsellors to, quote, work against them and frustrate their plans, unquote, in every way possible, wearing them down psychologically. You can see that in verse 5. And this went on unceasingly for year after year, and gradually it took its toll. Zerubbabel himself, along with the people, became so discouraged and fearful that the building project eventually ground to a complete halt after about six years. You know, in my experience, discouragement, fear and infiltration are still three of the most effective tactics used by Satan against the church today. Discouragement, fear and infiltration. And so it's so important that we encourage one another to keep doing God's work, that we maintain our collective faith and trust in God and that we know what his word says so that false teaching can be rooted out. Well, the result was that for about 10 years, no work was done on the temple. In fact, the people spent their time building up their own houses rather than God's. And then, looking at Ezra 5, And verse 1, two prophets appeared on the scene. The elderly Haggai and the youthful Zechariah. A great example of different ends of the spectrum working together in the church. Could say a bit more about that, but I haven't really got the time. Haggai probably had even seen Solomon's temple in his youth. He was probably in his 70s. Zechariah was probably in his 20s. Haggai rebuked them for their complacency and lethargy. And he, they told, them, he told them that it was no wonder they'd become dissatisfied with their lot because their priorities were all wrong. And to see Haggai's actually words, you can turn to the prophecy of Haggai at some point and look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1 of that prophecy. Because this is the context. You know I'm always banging on about context. This is the context. They succumbed to discouragement and they neglected God's house, which is why they weren't experiencing God's blessing in their lives. And they were to put this right immediately, says Haggai, and complete the building of the temple. And as they did so, God would be with them and strengthen them. But Haggai didn't just bring a rebuke. In chapter 2 of his prophecy in verse 9, we see that he also brought a wonderful promise from God. And every time I read it, I can't believe how wonderful and mind-blowing this promise is. Well, given all that we've been thinking about with this